your podcast host, Tim Minichi. Before we start this episode, I want to let you know about 90s Night at the Goat at Hayden Run on Saturday, December 3rd from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. If you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, bust out your flannel shirts and parachute pants and stop by the Goat at 5730 Silver Fall Street in Dublin, where I'll be spinning the best 90s music all night long. For more information, visit digmeoutpodcast.com and lcgoat.com. Now on with the podcast. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Weasels by Alcohol Funny Car. You know, it's rock and roll. That's what's great about rock and roll is, you know, at some point you, you just turn your brain off and it just works for you and you just have fun with it. I'm getting those nostalgic remembrance feelings having never heard this record before. This album sounded a lot like what I think a lot of people think the 90s sound like. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. And joining me once again... Jason Ziak. Jay. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an interesting evening already. Oh my god. <laughs> Unprecedented technical problems. Yeah, this is the worst technical difficulty we have ever encountered in the history of Dig Me Out. I, I remarked to Chip that technology makes this show possible and it's also at times a major pain in the ass. Yeah, we have, um, we're have. we an hour behind our normal start recording time. Thank God we don't do this live, like with a chat that's going on, like some podcasts do, because we'd have a lot of angry people right now. That'd be way too much pressure. I think we would both lose our minds. Yeah. So you mentioned Chip. We have a guest joining us for tonight's episode. That's Chip Midnight. Say hello, Chip. Hello, Chip. <laughs> Chip back once again. He joined us on the Triple Fast Action episode and the Magna Pop episode. And like the Magna Pop episode, Chip will be bringing us an interview with one of the artists involved in tonight's band. That band being Alcohol Funny Car. Have you guys, well, I know, I know Chip was familiar with Alcohol Funny Car before tonight. Uh, Jay, were you familiar with Alcohol Funny Car? Uh, again, it was one of those bands that I knew the name, but did not know uh, what they sounded like, which is actually kind of interesting just because the uh, the name and the album cover sort of, in my mind, conjured a certain sound that uh, I will say did not, the, the actual music did not exactly match up with. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, so the, the funny thing is, I'm not altogether that familiar with Alcohol Funny Car. Before this podcast, listening to, to the album we're going to talk about, this is the first time I've heard it. So I, I didn't Whoa. hear this back in the day. Yeah. Well, this was a suggestion that we got over email from Sandra James. This actually goes back a while. I'm, I apologize to Sandra for taking so long. She just suggested that we review one of the Alcohol Funny Car albums, and this is the one that I picked. Because um, it was the one that I found first. Hmm. So uh, it's actually their second album that we're reviewing, which is called Weasels. And I'm just going to go ahead right now. They have a brief history, and I'm going to get into it. History of the band. 
Alcohol Funny Car was formed in 1991 in Seattle, Washington by Ben London, who has a tie to Ohio. He's actually from Ohio originally. The original lineup included bassist Tommy Simpson from the bands Love Battery and Crisis Party and drummer Buzz Crocker. They released an EP and an album. On uh, for, The Burn EP came out on C slash Z Records in 1993. And the uh, debut album also came out later that year, Time to Make the Donuts on Zoo Entertainment. Buzz Crocker left the band in 93 and was replaced by Joel Trueblood, who was the drummer on the album that we're reviewing, Weasels, up until 1996, which is uh, roughly when the band stopped being a band. Um, now, Chip, you mentioned we, we had some emails back and forth that there was some stuff that went on with Ben London after this band. Do you want to elaborate on uh, what happened after Alcohol Funny Car was no more? Sure thing. So, like I said, that that's um, I got into Alcohol Funny Car. Well, first of all, uh, they had a song called Shapes. It was on the Brain Scan soundtrack. So, I don't know anybody that saw that movie. No. But, um, yeah, I don't even know what it's about. I don't know. I, I had a promo copy of the CD, and... Honestly, that's the only song I remember from it, but that's what kind of got me interested in the band, but I never followed up and never listened to anything after that. I think it was like 97, 98, I got a CD in the mail from a band called Sanford Arms, you know, back when when I actually got promo CDs in the mail instead of digital download links, (laughs) Um, which was much cooler because, you know, I I could flip through CD covers and and Ben London's name kind of sounded familiar to me, so I kind of looked around and realized that he was from Alcohol Funny Car. But yeah, so Sanford Arms put out two records in the late 90s. Maybe the second one might have come out in early 2000. I believe and so. Then, yeah, and then after that, he did a band called Burning Rivers. And currently, he's in a band called Stag. He plays guitar and does, I think, like background vocals in that band. But Sanford Arms and Burning Rivers were really his his bands that he fronted and put together and ended up after Alcohol Funny Car. And they were a lot different sounding than Alcohol Funny Car was. That's what I got from reading your interview um, from back in the day on Swizzle Stick, which is one yes. of your many websites. Yeah, so Sanford Arms was, um, I think in that interview, I, I went back and read it today for the first time in probably 10 years, but uh, I think Ben mentioned something that he wanted Sanford Arms to kind of fall somewhere between Granddaddy and Flaming Lips. To me, I mean, you know, I, I know you guys, or at least Tim is, is uh, a huge Wilco fan. I'm not, I, I like Wilco a lot, but I'm not. Uh, a diehard fan to me this first Sanford Arms record sounded like a Wilco record hmm did they have a country, so, country kind of thing yeah I mean kind of a Wilco meets Flaming Lips so okay. kind of a uh, kind of a spacey kind of alt country alt country pop-ish mm-hmm. it was a great I mean I fell in love with that record that's how I I mean I ended up interviewing him and uh, we did it via email and then as Tim mentioned he grew up in Cleveland and was coming back for like Thanksgiving or Christmas or some some reason bringing him back from Seattle uh, for a couple of days and he had emailed me and I ended up setting up uh, you know he said he had an acoustic guitar and would love to play in Columbus so 
um, we did an in-store at Use Kids, and then he did a show at the Treehouse in Columbus. Just him on guitar, so it was pretty cool. Did he play anything from this uh, Alcohol Funny Car album? Uh, <laughs> like I said, I didn't know really Alcohol Funny Car stuff until yeah. the past couple of weeks, so I, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Was that he didn't even mention the band at all? I mean, it was sort of just not part of what. Uh, he oh, was... I mean, when we did the interview, we talked about Alcohol Funny Car. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like he didn't talk about it. I just don't know if he played any gotcha. of their stuff. Gotcha. Well, that's a good uh, segue to us actually talking about Alcohol Funny Car and their second album. I, I, I kind of thought listening to this, there was, I, I want to give a little bit of an overview and then and then get into you guys. This album sounded a lot like what I think a lot of people think the 90s sound like. Like this to me sounds, it has a little bit of a, of a, not, I guess pop punk sound would be the appropriate um, designation, but it's really just a straight up sort of rock record. Yeah. And it's not overly melodic, but it's not dissonant. Um, it's not filled with blazing guitar solos, but they're not also um, simple, you know, one note guitar solos. It sort of just in- incorporates everything that a stamp of 1990s music sounds like. And that's, of course, dismissing the oddball stuff like with the ska revival and the, you know, techno and uh, electronica stuff. Those were on the peripheral of what you would say, like rock music. Mm -hmm. But if you were to if you were to say uh, who they sound like a little bit of Sponge, a little bit of Foo Fighters, a little bit of Local H, a little bit of Husker Du, a little, you know, there's so many different bands that, that they sort of encapsulate that I kind of heard them sounding like everything. And I'm wondering what, what you guys heard. <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was totally on board with that. In fact, I, I, I actually struggle with it quite a bit in terms of, I, I found myself really just... I guess from a gut reaction, really liking the album, but as I analyzed it, I liked it less. And I know that, (laughs) you know, that's a tough way to listen to music. So it's like, you know, I would find myself really being into the songs and enjoying them. But then when I would sort of break it down as a music reviewer, I would sort of, uh, you know, try to figure out, all right, well, what's the guitar doing? What's the vocal doing? What's the, and look at it that way. And it would start to fall apart. But when I remove myself from being, you know, sort of the music reviewer role and being more of just a listener, I actually liked it quite a bit. And it was sort of a struggle back and forth between, you know, sort of just what my gut was saying and what my head was saying and what this album was doing. It was was really interesting. And I definitely agree with uh, what you're saying about this being like really right down the middle of 90s rock, Um, especially... Uh, the band that kept coming to mind for me was Sponge a lot, and uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's not, there's not that many bands out there where you're going to say that they sound like Sponge, so that's kind of a unusual uh, comparison to make. But there, it's true. I mean, it's just there. It's there vocally, and it's just there from uh, how the band overall presents themselves and sort of where they fit musically. Um, and I, I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think there's actually some sponge stuff that's pretty good and 
and uh, and it's interesting that he has Cleveland roots, and that Sponge was from Detroit. And another band that I kept thinking of was Horse, who was also from Detroit. I kept thinking. I also thought of a little bit of Watershed, who's from Columbus. So there's this whole like Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit thing that was going on in my head as I was listening to it, and I actually kind of appreciated that and enjoyed that aspect of it. I guess I, I don't really know. I mean, I know that he. I guess from listening to Chip that he grew up in Cleveland and I always knew there was a Cleveland connection to this band, but did it go beyond him just growing up there? I mean, did they ever, you know, regular, regularly gig, gig there or were any other members from Cleveland or? So I don't think so. The, the one thing, Tim, I don't, you didn't touch on this, but, um, he, uh, Ben went to Antioch college. So you went to college at Antioch, right? I did, yeah, in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yes, what, 45 minutes from Columbus. Right, so how did you end up in Seattle? I know that, um, I, I don't know much about the history, but I, I've read some of the stuff that, that sure, sure. the whole collective of well, people went out there. Yeah, yeah, so we uh, had this band I was in called Big Brown House, and another band that shared some members with Big Brown House called The Gits, and uh, this woman named Aubrey Agnew, who ended up being the drummer in Seven Year Bitch, and then uh, this guy, uh, Julian Gibson, and this woman, Carla Sindel, they had a band called, that ended up being called the DC Beggars. And um, we decided that we all wanted to move somewhere to play music. And we were in, you know, in, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is pretty rural. And uh, we kind of narrowed it down to four cities. We were thinking about New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or Seattle. Or I guess San Francisco was in there. Like, San Francisco more than Los Angeles, rather. And... Uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's New York was too expensive or Chicago was too close to Ohio and um, San Francisco seemed too expensive. And we decided on Seattle just because some of us had traveled through there for one reason or another in the year or so prior. And it seemed like a good place to go. And it just by chance turned out to be a good place to be for music. I mean, I was a DJ in college on uh, WYSO in Yellow Springs. And uh, the only band that I'd heard of at that point from Seattle was Soundgarden just because we got that Ultra Mega OK record that was on SST uh, that we played at the station. Right. And, uh, you know, so there really wasn't even that much of a thought process like, oh, well, Soundgarden's from there. We should go out there. It was just sort of like, well, there's a band, there are bands out there, but we just want to go someplace where we can go do our thing. That's really interesting because uh, I briefly uh, worked at the same place that a member of the Gits worked at. Oh really? Uh, yeah, the I can't I don't know his name, but I think it was either the bass player or the guitar player from that band. Uh, we both worked at the same ad agency for a year or so, and uh, I just remember thinking at the time this would have been in, uh, the early two thousands, uh, trying to figure out like how the hell did this guy end up in Columbus? If they're if they're a Seattle band, I guess I would have to look at the history. But if you're saying that some of the members were from Ohio, then that would make sense of how uh, if he was one of those people ended up back in Ohio if, if uh, he went to Antioch so that's so me. Chip what were your um, what were your impressions of listening to this since you said this was also the first time you listened right. to Weasels so I would actually echo I mean everything both of you said is exactly what I was thinking too so um, I mean that's one of the things I love about this podcast is that I, I've heard of all these bands and I get to go back and rediscover them either by hearing you guys talk about them or then going out and checking them out on Spotify or any of the, you know, anywhere else. But, um, this is an album that I kind of 
I, I feel like I should have listened to you and knowing what I listened to in 1993, 94, 95, like I'm mad at myself for not listening to it then <laughs> because, because it totally falls into what I, what I was listening to. I, I think for me, the, uh, it was kind of the, in that time period, it was guilty by association for record labels. So I liked Nirvana. So I liked a lot of sub pop stuff. And I think I must have heard something on CZ that made me think that it was a, a like a punk rock label. And I didn't like whatever it was I heard. And so I didn't listen to anything on that label. Yeah. And like I said, so I missed out on this. You know, the one thing that kept striking in my head, and it's exactly what we both said, is that this sounds like a Midwest band with Pacific Northwest influences. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of any of the bands that you guys mentioned, but the bands that came to me when I was listening to it was uh, like early Goo Goo Dolls when they were kind of sounded like the replacements. Um, That's a good comparison. Yeah. A little bit of Everclear, but without the hooks. Mm-hmm. Like especially the first Everclear record, that World of Noise record. In in a way, another band that um, that we've talked about, kind of off offline, uh, for Love Not Lisa, but not with the you know for Love Not Lisa kind of had a um, helmet and quicksand influence, and I don't think these guys do at all. But I but but I think if you were to listen to For Love Not Lisa, and especially the stuff that after For Love Not Lisa, the singer did a band called Puller. I kept thinking that it sounded a lot like Polar, um, a little bit like Paw. I mean, but yeah, like I said, the, the Midwest stuff that you guys were, were talking about, that's totally the feel I got for this record. It just sounds really, um, it just sounds really honest. You know, it doesn't sound pretentious at all. Uh, that's probably the Midwestern thing coming through. And I, yeah. at times I, I could be overcritical of the lyrics. You know, there's several uh, notes I made on here on songs where, Maybe lyrically it wasn't as um, stellar as it could be, but there's just something about the delivery that uh, and the production that just seems so honest that I'm forgiving uh, at times when the lyrics aren't maybe as good as they or as strong as they could possibly be. Just something about it feels definitely I, I get the sense that you know there's a singer songwriter aspect to it in terms of there's there's a you know one creative voice who's who's writing the songs and delivering them, which I'm going to guess based on the fact that Ben London's gone on, gone on to do other bands, that that's probably true. Um, he surrounded himself with a pretty solid band too, which helps. Um, so there's no, there's mo- no moments on here where you think like, you know, Oh, that, you know, the drummer's not really that good or the bass player's kind of dialing it in or, or phoning it in. And, you know, th- they kind of just, uh, the drummer at times, I think, actually does a really good job of keeping the songs interesting. And for the most part, you know, the bass just finds its moments, too. I mean, there's uh, one of the things that drew me in first was there's a lot of distortion used on the bass um, throughout throughout the album, which is actually pretty interesting for me. Um, kind of pulls me in and creates some cool textures. But in general, you get the sense that, um, you know, the way he delivers the songs, and the way they're written, that they were... Um, probably written by one person and then they kind of put a band around them right which is which is actually i think in this case sometimes that doesn't always come come through as a good thing but i think in this case it's actually pretty pretty cool so um i was gonna ask chip just because i think we (laughs) we both have a uh a passion and interest in the 80s metal stuff there's a couple moments on here, particularly with uh, with song six, Weasels, which I think is one of the strongest albums on here. Or, or yeah. s- sorry, one of the strongest songs on the album. 
it's it has some strong elements of like 80s pop metal and i can't quite figure out like what band i'm what band or bands i'm thinking of that they kind of remind me of of that era but there's just this really good hicky hooky uh element there's there's some riffs in there that that the guitar plays that remind me of that kind of stuff but i can't quite figure out like what bands i'm thinking of when i when i hear that but it just sounds really reminiscent of like the late 80s Seven weeks in a van, what a long long time a fishbowl on wheels in overdrive get me home and pull me out exposed to where i shake he thought he heard some maybe not 80s hair metal but kind of some of the some of the uh, stuff that led up to 80s hair metal maybe some Kiss or Cheap Trick and that kind of stuff would you would you say that oh without a doubt I mean I grew up on that stuff and I mean I'd be the first to admit that you know I mean I cut my teeth on, on 70s and 80s metal you know I mean you know I, I was saying somebody the other day you know Van Halen is the one band that I've unapologetically liked my whole life uh, you know I mean I just one of the first albums I ever bought was Van Halen 1 you know, it was really, I was never quite good enough to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen, but some of the chord voicings and things definitely came out. And, uh, you know, I was into, I had an interesting, you know, I had an older brother that was really into music, but was really much more into, like, punk. And I remember, you know, being, listening to, like, the first Clash record and the first Ozzy record and not seeing a difference between the two of them when I was, like, in seventh or eighth grade or something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and in some ways, that's kind of, what alcohol funny car represented it was sort of like somewhere in between metal and and punk rock and but with some melody in it and uh you know i've always loved the radio and i like hooks and and uh was trying to kind of get to all that stuff uh whether it was consciously or, or subconsciously right so you grew up in the cleveland area is that right i did uh most of my, my formative years i was there from about sixth grade through high school yeah and um so was wms an influence as well Oh, it was massive. You know, it's like, I, I, it's so funny now, you know, I've, I've gotten, I've been on these binges lately of going back and digging through Cleveland music, you know, I mean, I was always really into, <clears throat> once I left and got more into music, but, you know, it was like, like Perubu and the Dead Boys and, and things like that that came, you know, Rocket from the Tomb that came from uh, Cleveland. But yeah, WMS was a big influence and, you know, they were really adventurous for their time and the music they were playing and so whether it was kind of like, you know, playing The Clash or playing, um, you know, that stuff would be mixed in with Cheap Trick or would be mixed in with, uh, you know, Ozzy or Black Sabbath or, you know, other hard rock. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know, like whether it was like Judas Priest or, um, and then more like, you know, Cleveland stuff like Michael Stanley Band or, or, or stuff like that, where it all kind of came together. But it was... Uh, and then, you know, uh, in early 80s, you know, when that kind of like heavy pop sort of stuff came in, which was kind of like, you know, your lover boy and Foreigner and uh, Ario Speedwagon and stuff like that, you know, I mean, it, I, I listened to the hell out of that stuff uh, on the radio. 
and uh, and then really just kind of got proselytized for or went over to the more punk rock thing probably when I was more new wave punk rock in uh, high school and then into college big time. Yeah, I mean that's probably what I'm hearing because it's like yeah. I, I can't put I can't say oh yeah that sounds like totally like poison or that sounds totally like you know danger danger or whatever band it it sounds similar which makes sense in terms of he was pulling from the same influences that those bands were i mean i know they were all those bands were huge kiss fans they were all huge sweet fans so that makes sense that he can't he kind of came from it you know from a more mid-90s angle but still in the end you know he listened to a ton of cheap tricks so right <laughs> you know that kind of comes through which it, it, it's kind of neat it's it's a really it's an interesting album I, I don't know i mean what what did you think tim in terms of like i guess the were you sort of struggling with like liking parts of it but also finding tons of flaws and sort of trying to figure out how you can you know I was pretty conflicted because the one thing that I think it lacked and I think that really hurts the album is the lack of dynamics. Mm. There is very little going on in terms of shifting um, loud and quiet and um, playing with a lot of this felt very similar tempo wise. Yeah. And it, it sort of felt like like you said, it, was, it felt like a guy who had written them on acoustic guitar or electric guitar, and then they layered on the rest of the stuff and basically turned up the volume to make them into rock songs. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like... You can definitely feel when it comes from the building it from a band point of view, where the drummer has more input, and the or, or building it even from a rhythm section standpoint where the drummer will automatically put in things that are more rhythmic that someone who just plays guitar doesn't necessarily do. Like, he does do some interesting things, and I think it's more with his phrasing. Like, on track five, Kindling, yeah. um, when they get to the part at the start of the chorus, and he hits the line, I've been tried and convicted, and the, and the, the drums lock up. the syncopation of his vocal yeah um that's really cool but they do that like twice in the song and there's really nothing else on a lot of the album that approaches that sort of melding of the vocal cadence with what's going on with the music he's just kind of he's singing on top of the music which is fine it's not necessarily like he's ignoring what's going on and it's separate but there's just not a lot of interplay between the vocals and and what the rest of the the band is doing it seems like there is some some doubling either doubling a vocal or 
somebody else is maybe singing in the band. I'm not sure. Did you guys pick that up? Yeah, and I try to figure out. It, it seems stronger at the beginning of the album. Album, or yes. maybe maybe I get. I couldn't figure out if I was getting used to it or if it just tails off as the album goes on and, it, and they do it less. But you definitely hear it on the first, uh, say, three or four songs where <laughs> I was trying to analyze what they were doing, and I'm, I'm. I'm listening to it thinking like, okay, first off, is that harmony and, or is it just a double? And there's times when I think he's doing both. And then I'm trying to figure out, is it just the singer doing it or is it another person in the band? And I kind of came, came away feeling like it was the singer, but the second track that they were adding, he would float between actually doing a harmony and doing a double. And the result was you know sort of uh this it just gave it kind of a loose sense which i think actually ended up working pretty well um Mm -hmm. so it didn't feel like super polished and super overproduced which i I felt like uh there's a weird i know we use this a lot but there's a weird punk aesthetic to this but in no way does this sound like punk music Uh, you know it doesn't follow any of the tempos or any of the normal songwriting I guess uh, cliches that punk would have, but there's just there's enough elements of I guess it being sort of jagged and unrefined in both the vocal, the production, the guitars, uh, the solos, even the drums at times get a little bombastic and sort of uh, you know they go there's enough energy there that um, it sort of has a uh, you know the, I guess that punk aesthetic that I'm that I'm talking about. Um, in the loosest, <laughs> in the loosest form that you can imagine, but uh, you know it's re- it's really interesting in that aspect. I think it may I, be, I, may have been reflective of the scene that they were in. I mean, mid '90s Seattle. You know, you had a lot of, between the punk and the grunge stuff. I mean, I remember Columbus at that time. You know, I, I hate to get too local on this, but Greenhorn was not a punk band. But their peers were New Bomb Turks and Gaunt, and they were punk bands. And Greenhorn fit in with those bands, similar to what you were just saying, Jay, from a from a certain sound. But they didn't really sound like they weren't a punk band at all. Yeah. But they but they had but being part of that scene, you could make that connection between the bands. Yeah. It's still strange for me to think of this band as a Seattle band. I mean, there's just so many stereotypes that go with. You know, when you say Seattle band, what you think of and, you know, in most ways they don't fit that. I, I guess the closest Seattle bands I could think of would be like maybe Sweetwater and then later Foo Fighters, you know. So, so I was um, going to bring up Foo Fighters. Uh, and then Stag is actually playing a show or they may have just played a show with Sweetwater who is reunited. Really? So that's Ben's, Ben's new band, which is Ben's new band is way more... Um, uh, guided by voices, cheap trick, the who kind of more along that line than it mm. is alcohol funny car. But uh, yeah, that is a, a funny connection that I'm sure the Sweetwater guys were around in in other bands at that time too. So yeah, and they stand stood out for me as being, you know, uh, they were definitely a Seattle band. They identified themselves a lot with Seattle, but they didn't sound very much like any of the other bands. You know, they had more of a Brit pop slash pop metal right. rock kind of thing going on and didn't borrow very much at all from what else was going on in Seattle. So 
And, and you know, and, and Ben and with Sanford Arms worked with some guys who were in Seattle bands that weren't in bands that we, we regularly think of. One of the guys in Sanford Arms was from a band called Hammerbox. Okay. I don't know if you know them. They, uh, they eventually, I think they got signed to like A&M. They had a, a female singer. Um, like I said, not typical what you'd expect out of the Seattle scene of the mid-90s. And then also, um, uh, one of the guys in Sanford Arms was in Best Kissers in the World. Mm-hmm. Which is another band that you don't think of as a as a, a Seattle grunge band, mm-hmm. but th- there was a just a really thriving music scene in Seattle at the time. I think the grunge stuff is what everybody heard, but um, yeah, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And Alcohol Funny Car kind of, I think, kind of floated between all that stuff. I was going to mention Foo Fighters because track seven, Napoleon, mm-hmm. the beginning of that song really sounds like a, a Foo Fighters song off of the first two records. I'm not saying the whole song does, and it actually gets into this almost like curb dog sounding riff. Mm-hmm. And his vocal even gets into that range where I was like, why do I know this? Why, who does, who does this sound like? And I, I was struggling with it for days. And I was like, oh, it sounds like the guy from, from Curb Dog. Um, That's funny because I wrote down, uh, I was doing the same thing as you. I was like, man, this sounds like somebody. I ended up writing down Soul Asylum. <laughs> And I'm telling you, if you guys, you guys need to go check out For Love, Not Lisa, because that's what I was thinking. just so funny how this band like i think that that point we just went through there on that one song where it's just like it sounds so familiar in a lot of you know just but but in a lot of different ways and you can't quite put your finger on it. It, it and so part of that to me what i was thinking as i was listening to it is if they'd had a second guitarist yeah i mean that would have depending on what that guitarist influences were i mean i could very easily see them becoming a seaweed or a quicksand with a heavier guitar player because i i I, I caught certain things in certain songs that made me think that they could have been a post-hardcore band, but they didn't have a post-hardcore guitar player. That would have been really cool. <laughs> Just thinking about his his um, pop sensibilities in terms of how he 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 uh, you know just vocally what he was doing and his melodies, but you know the raggedness that he had vocally and the raggedness that he has from a guitar playing standpoint. If you combine that with with another guitar player who is like really you know pretty tight and pretty accurate but just provided like a heavy rhythm that would kind of create a, a really interesting combination what you may have sounded like had you had a second guitarist well you know that and that that you know actually weasels has a lot of overdubbed guitar on it a lot of stuff that i did and that um 
and that for the shows and stuff kind of leading up to that record like we'd already recorded the record but touring it and then touring it afterwards we actually had a second guitar player and started playing live with us a couple different people so my friend Harris who was the guitar player in Hammerbox they had since disbanded he did some shows with us and then my friend Andrew McKegg, uh, who was in a band called Uncle Joe's Big Old Driver, um, who actually plays guitar in the Presidents of the USA now, um, uh, did some dates with us. And my brother actually did a tour down to South by Southwest uh, on that record. Just because okay. a bunch of those songs felt really naked just in the trio right. format. So, so did either of you guys, um, the second to last track is called Sunspots? Yes. Is that, so that, that song is a little bit different than the rest of the record. It's... Um, a lot quieter there's some piano and and this is going to sound weird maybe but like i i kind of got a little like nine inch nails ish yeah with like the, the johnny cash version mm-hmm. of hurt like that's what it reminded me of yeah and he, he goes into a completely different vocal delivery like he sings yeah. in a different uh he sings in a different tone and a different voice and he does the rest of the album um i i kind of wish that you know, as that song began and developed, I I was intrigued by it. Um, I was really hoping that he would, at some point, break out of that and go into something a little bit more, you know, expressive and sort of louder and, you know, in your face. And he really doesn't. He kind of stays in that voice through the whole song, and it just kind of stays down in that that's that slow, moody kind of area, which. Uh, I think it works if it was short, but it, I, I have to check the time, but it seemed like it was a pretty long song. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of lost me after, you know, maybe a, a minute or so. It does go on probably I'm, I'm checking the, the time now uh, it, it, it's almost four minutes mm-hmm. and that could have easily been a two minute long song mm-hmm. um, overall I mean I don't think that there's the longest song on here is 440 you know they managed to stay in that two and a half to three minute three and a half minute range pretty well throughout most of the record which is what I think like if you don't love what they're doing it makes it easier to digest because the next song is going to come up real fast yeah but i also think like you guys mentioned earlier if you don't love what they're doing 
you should pretty much skip songs three through like nine because they all kind of have a similar tempo, a similar feel. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think the the first couple songs and the last couple songs are a little bit different to me. Like the very first song, Objects, like I almost like when it first starts, I almost get almost like a really early like Weezer before they got real poppy kind of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guitar stuff reminded me of Weezer. And then Red Wine, the second song, Jay, I think that goes back to like what you were talking about lyrically. It's not a very deep song, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But but I but I also think when I was, even though I haven't heard this record until the last couple of weeks, throughout the years, Red Wine is a song that came, seems to pop up a lot. Like when I look at Ben's Facebook wall or when I read stuff about him. So I think that might have been. I don't think it was a single or a hit single at all, but I think that's a song that people identify him with. Yeah, and it, it's funny to me because, like, like I said, lyrically, that's probably the simplest lyrics, and they are what they are, but they're not the deepest lyrics. Yeah, and that's one of those songs where, um, actually, lyrically, I I don't mind it as much um, because it is making a sort of a a characterization or an observation or a stereotype. You know, she likes red wine, and then he sort of makes him. You know, what what does that mean about somebody? Um, right. Which is, you know, I think that's something that people, that's just one of those classic pop song references that you can make where people are like, oh, yeah, I know people who like red wine. And, yeah, they're stereotypically like this. And it sort of plays into that whole psychographic of, of, of you know, how you uh, how you make, you know, clever use of references and pop culture things and just trends. And that was one of those things that I really I actually did pick up on that song. I was like, oh, that's that's fairly clever it doesn't go much beyond that i think to your point chip and you know he doesn't dig a whole lot deeper but he does make a reference on there and a couple other songs uh like weasels where you know there's some some strong references about you know what it's like to be in a band and tour and be in a van and, and do that whole experience and um you know those are two songs where you know i think overall you have to lower the bar a little bit lyrically but those are two songs where for me at least there's some moments where that pops out and you do notice some some lyrics and references he makes that are fairly unique and so just in general stuff you can identify with. Right. Um, I think on some other songs, you know, he just dropping stuff where it's, you know, kind of rhyming by numbers and just generic, like, you know, I look into your eyes kind of stuff. I, I think I call that out as one of the lines or look into my eyes and what do you see and that kind of stuff. You know, like, Oh boy, <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot there. Um, right. You know, that's where I got more critical of, you know the lyrics but again it was just when i would do that you know i could sort of make a rational you know choice about okay well you know this isn't as good as it could be but when i pull myself out of that 
and just listening to it, you know, at a more emotional level, it it still worked for me, which was, I don't know, I, that's what kind of made it challenging to try to figure out, like, you know, is this a good album or is it not a good album? You know, my my foot tapping is telling me it's good, and sort of like my head bobbing is telling me it's good, but you know, as I analyze it, it's telling me, well, maybe it's not so good. Stop waffling, Jay. Just pick a. What do you like it or not? <laughs> I know. I. I. It was tough. It's tough. No, I understand what you're saying because I can put it on and listen to it and be com- completely content. But when I have to actually start breaking it down and making notes for each song, I didn't have a lot of stuff to write. Yeah. Because I felt like I was sort of repeating. Oh, this has got a nice riff, and there's an interesting, you know, part here, and that's like the next song and then okay this next song has that too and you know other than like actually breaking down what the chord progressions are or what leads he's playing in the notes like <laughs> right, i kind of right. felt like there wasn't a whole lot to to, to differentiate <laughs> what's going on other than like chip mentions tracks one and two are are significantly different than the basically the middle chunk of the album yeah. <laughs> that's so funny because i i mean that's I, I just I'm laughing because it's just so exactly what I was thinking. I mean, I got to the point where I was like, maybe I'll listen to the guitar chords and figure out like how many is this a three chord progression or a four chord progression? You know, like trying to break down like I guess trying to you know as I'm critiquing it, trying to figure out like okay, well I know this is sophisticated and it doesn't have the pieces that I normally look for, so let me make an make notes on what those are. And it's just like you know, part of me is like it's music. You know, it's rock and roll. That's what's great about rock and roll is, you know, at some point you you just turn your brain off and it just works for you and you just have fun with it. So, yeah. And that level, in some weird, strange way, it works. To me, like I said, having not listened to it until the last few weeks, I'm sure you guys are like this and I'm sure most people are like this. I I have a column on my website, uh, atomicned.com, called Soundtrack of My Life, where I ask artists to talk about a song that when they hear it it can take them back to a specific time and place and they can mm. smell something they smelled I haven't heard I haven't heard this record before two weeks ago and when I listen to it I can see myself living on Indiana Avenue I can see myself drinking beer and smoking cigarettes on a Friday night before going out to a club like it, it that to me this is a Friday night record that I put on with my friends and not pay a lot of attention to, mm-hmm. but I'd use it as my background music before I went out to go see a band. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm getting those nostalgic remembrance feelings having never heard this record before. Yeah. It ju- it just perfectly fits into that. It just captures all of the stuff that was going on, I think, for, for most, you know, uh, alt rock, modern rock, you know, you know, fans of the of the mid '90s, it just captures all of that stuff in a really kind of simple right. way. Um, on on uh, at least, I would say the first you know nine songs, maybe eight songs. It, I think Chip, you brought up the point that at that point it starts to get a little different, right? Uh, but that first uh, three quarters of the album are are just I don't know they just encapsulate that whole era so well. And uh, in a lot of ways, if you you would say that, I would say, you know, my reaction would be that I probably wouldn't like it because it would be cliched, but it somehow doesn't feel cliched to me. Right. I, I don't know. Why, I don't know why I'm struggling with 
everything, uh, uh, you know, as I analyze it, should say like, oh yeah, this should feel like really boring and cliched and you know done before, and there's nothing really here to discover. But when I listen to it, it's not like that at all. So uh, it, it's an interesting album, I, and I sampled the second album. I don't know if either of you guys took a took a listen to that. Obviously, we're not going to do a full review of that. Or I'm sorry, the first so, al- first yeah. album. I, I love that song, Shapes. Like I said, that's a song. It was on the Brain Scan soundtrack, which I did have, and I—that was a song. I love that song. I, I still listen to that song. I, when I had an eMusic account, I downloaded that one song because I love that. <laughs> I love that song. I, I don't. I, I started listening to, to today on Skype. Just, or I'm sorry, on uh, Spotify, just to get a sense of what it was like. And overall, the album was. Uh, it seemed to be a little bit more, I guess, grungy, a little bit raw. It wasn't quite as, didn't have the pop sensibilities maybe that the second album did. Yeah, um, I would love to. I, I'm definitely going to go back and, and listen to that one. Yeah, and, and they're both available on there. The other thing about this album that so much reminded me of the mid '90s and maybe even threw me. I think I mentioned earlier that you know knowing this, I heard of this band. I heard the band name. I had seen the album cover before. I had just never heard the album. To me, I thought this was going to be a lot like more typical proto grunge, post grunge kind of thing. Maybe like a, I don't know, more I guess in the area of like a paw or somebody who's like a little bit raw or maybe using drop D riffs, you know, Stone Temple Pilotsy kind of that kind of mid 90s thing. Um, and the album cover kind of looks like that. It's like the, there's like a weird looking clown photograph and <laughs> it's just like yeah. that mid nineties kind of like, you know, you, you find weird, you know, pop culture kind of stuff and you take photos of it and put, you know, stylized type with it. And it sort of gives this weird eerie kind of feel to it. And that, I was totally thinking that that's what this band sounded like. And they don't sound anything like that. You know? And see, I told, I thought they were going to sound like new bomb Turks, like kind of a faster, punkier yeah. raw garage stuff. That that would have been more. That would have been closer to to what I would have expected. Um, and they're and they're not like that at all. Oh, not at all. I was I was shocked. Yeah, I was completely thrown. <laughs> I was expecting it, them to be stoner rock. Yeah, yeah. I was expecting something. Yeah, heavier, grungier, maybe on a punk rock tip. You know that kind of thing. And they're just they're not like that at all. I mean, they're way more pop than that. Uh so. Thanks to Chip for the interview with Ben. And now it's time for why this band failed. I mean, why this what band wasn't why this album wasn't bigger. Jeez. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to put a negative spin on it. So we talked about how this sort of encapsulated everything that was the nineties in terms of you know, rock. Uh, is that what also hurt it? Because it is so down the middle and there isn't a you can't say wow those guys really do x well or that one song is so catchy or is it what is there sort of almost you know they're they're sort of the um trying to draw a sports analogy they're like the utility infielder who doesn't necessarily get a lot of credit and it's the guy who hits 45 home runs, but can't necessarily, you know, make a catch in the outfield. That's 
a routine uh, fly that maybe th their inability to transcend anything that's just good and didn't excel to great that that's what hurt them I would agree with you except for one fact I believe when this album came out wasn't it about the same time that Sponge's album came out the first album it's gotta be in the ballpark and they uh, uh, let me check and I'll tell you to keep talking it can't be too far off cause I was still in Cleveland and that would have been 95, 96 alright very, very sadly I'm sitting at my uh, CD shelf and I've got Sponge's rotting pinata right in front of me 94 and it came out 94 yeah so to me <laughs> and so that's a, that's a year before this but I'm going to argue with you about that because I think Sponge wrote one of the catchiest songs of the 90s which is Molly yeah I think 16 this... Candles Down the Drain I mean that's like that's a huge hook for that song no I, I no I totally agree with you so I think this band was 95% <laughs> there like they needed yeah. that one song like to me I listen to like um, Weasel or maybe even the first two songs and they are so close I mean we may have touched on it earlier in the in the podcast they may be a second guitar player away from of getting there because I think in a lot of ways his hooks are there I just don't quite think the sound you know that you know Molly and even you know most of that first sponge record even the second one you know the, the second guitar player in that band is really good in sponge yeah and um, you know when they hit the chorus you know they just got that that big thick guitar sound they're a little bit more polished maybe than the alcohol farting car was but I, I mean, I think we're looking at a matter of like minor, minor changes in revisions and in, in production to get this band to be to be where Sponge was. So once again, I think we're all on the same page. I'll agree with what you both said. But I think the factor, and once again, I'm going back and reading this interview I did with Ben. Um, he said that they had major labels interested in them. When all was said and done, we were not going to sell a million records, be famous or whatever. We were just a band that had a few good songs and toured a bunch. So we put an EP out first called Burn. It was like a five-song EP. And we definitely had some labels starting to sniff around, like Capital. And um, and then when that record came out, and, and you know there was the crazy stuff going on with just Nirvana blowing up and everybody looking for the next Nirvana. And uh, so Rough House, which was uh, Cypress Hill's label and the Fuji's label, decided they wanted to start doing rock music. So this guy, Chris Schwartz, who was the head of that label, came out here and was interested in signing us. And so as part of him courting us, they asked us to be on that soundtrack and actually ended up making us the single on it and made a video for it and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and yeah, and they serviced it to radio. And then, you know, we kind of stupidly, uh, you know, held out thinking that we were going to you know, create some sort of bidding war or something, which is kind of ridiculous to think about now, but was quite uh, normal at that time. Quite normal at that time. Oh, yeah. And uh, probably should have, uh, you know, just gone ahead and signed with those guys and moved forward because, uh, you know, they had the, the machine to do that. But uh, we kind of didn't and then ended up uh, <clears throat> kind of in a worse situation uh, when CZ did a deal with a, with a, a label called Volcano at that point that had uh, been... Uh, or a zoo, rather, that had been like Tool's label and um, Matthew Sweet and a few things like that. Mm -hmm. 
that's something we I think we talked about with um, uh, was a Velvet Crush. It was just sort of like you know, it, a lot of times this comes down to it has nothing to do with the band. Uh, we've reviewed plenty of bands where we can pick out like okay, this is you know obviously the band there's a part they're not doing right. But a lot of these bands, you know, what wasn't done right had nothing to do with them. It had to do with what label they were on and who was who their A and R guy was and who the who was pushing the record. I mean, it comes down to you know what team was was behind this uh, making this album, pushing it to radio and making it work, and whether or not those right. people could do their jobs and how good they were at it. And I think we talked in the Velvet Crush episode was. And I think this holds true is you don't have a huge window here. You know, when you're talking about the mid nineties, there was tons and tons and tons of music coming out. So it's like, I think this is another example of if you don't have the horsepower and you don't hit the window, um, that's there for yourself at the right time with the right momentum, with the right plan, you know, you kind of get forgotten. And I think this band, maybe even more than velvet crush. I think it's, it's, it's even more disappointing just because I think, you can look at a band like Sponge, who sounded very similar and was doing, you know, for the most part, was in this, you know, very, very same uh, sound and approach. And, you know, Sponge, you know, got a hit and had an opportunity to have a career there. And they did some stuff, which was good for them. And this band, you know, essentially did nothing. You know, one thing that people that uh, hopefully that, that listen to this podcast and are, are you know, huge fans of music understand that maybe the general public doesn't understand is that, you know, when, when you're evaluating, you know, who's successful and who isn't, it has a lot. It has as much to do at times with the, uh, with the business side of things as it does with the, with the talent and the, and the bands themselves, which is unfortunate. And, and hopefully we're at a point where maybe that's less of a factor than it used to be as we sort of move to the, you know, the internet and the, and the, leaving behind the uh, autonomous uh, record labels who, you know, decide what people like and what they won't, you know, what they won't like and what gets played and what doesn't get played. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about the mid-90s, <laughs> it was very much a business. And it was very much uh, who was good at it, who wasn't. And if you weren't good, good at promoting bands, unfortunate for those, those artists, you know, you kind of got, you could get left behind and get screwed just Despite the fact that you may have recorded a great album and wrote a bunch of great songs and stuff, it sometimes it didn't matter. You just got left in the dust. Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the truth. I think we're over an hour once again with Chip. This is the second time that uh, we've hit the one hour mark, and I think the other one was on the Magnapop episode. So when Chip comes on, we have a lot to talk about. There's no doubt. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll cut some. Of my stuff out uh <laughs> we gotta thank chip for coming on we can find chip at his website atomicned.com is that correct it is correct and uh yeah thank you for coming on thanks for interviewing ben and uh yeah this was this was good you'll be back we're gonna be doing you've mentioned for love not lisa you'll be back or when we review that band in 2012, it's on yes. the schedule. So, uh, Jay, I need to get you that record so you can start <laughs> getting ready for that review. Chip will also be back in 2014 when we uh, we review the uh, Every Mother's Nightmare album from 1991. 
wake up screaming? <laughs> I don't even know. I just totally pulled that on my ass, but I, no, we got. I'm sure we got a fig dish album to get out. So <laughs> that's that. That'll be for 2014. Um, that's a three-hour podcast for that one. <laughs> oh, All right. Stuff. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jay, for joining me once again. Thanks, Chip. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. I need 30 seconds to go grab another beer. Go ahead. (laughs) I'll be right back. Uh, I'm about two sips away from being completely shit faced. So, <laughs> I, oh my god, I am in no shape to be doing troubleshooting right now. I'm just <laughs> telling you that. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, this is gonna be fun. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Weasels by Alcohol Funny Cat.